everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelicone. And welcome to our last episode of the year. And we will be covering tonight the top five films in 1999. Um, Frank, this is the end of the year. I'm considering it kind of the end of our first year overall, even though we started in September of 2018. Sure. Um, just as we've kind of gotten, <clears throat> I think, a grip on how to produce, how to, you know, you know, get through these episodes and how to like cover the material. Um, so this feels like a, a pretty appropriate place to end on for the year. Um, this is both, uh, like your kind of like heyday in film, really like, you know, late teens, early twenties, like you're watching tons of movies at this point, right? Oh yeah. Cause you're, you're at the theater, you're working at the movie theater at this point. I am. Right. So um so my guess is you probably even saw a lot of movies from this year like in the theater you would say yeah yeah i mean at least probably at least like a hundred right i saw in the theater yeah that's and it might be more than that yeah um so you've picked your top five um but there's a considerable amount of movies that are either good popular important in some way at least culturally for the time period so i just want to jump in and start kind of asking you about some of these movies so we can kind of get through those to get to your list because sure. it could take a little bit of time here um <clears throat> i will just promote that the other night one of these movies eyes wide shut we just recorded a special episode that we released a couple nights ago um it's kind of like a deep dive into eyes wide shut about an hour long or so so if you're interested in that please check that out so first, it's not on your list here, is American Beauty, which might be what many would consider one of the top films of that year. So what Certainly is, at the time it was considered. Sure. Do you think the Kevin Spacey allegations and revelations have um, um, harmed that in any way? Nah. It didn't hurt when we talked about LA Confidential. I mean, it's weird right. to like look at him in films now, but... Um, I don't necessarily think it, like, casts a pall over the film. I just, I don't think it's as, I don't know, edgy or culturally as relevant as it was in 1999. Like, I think it was a right. much more impactful movie in the immediate sense than it is now. Um, it's still a fine movie, but it's got some silly pretension to it. Um, I can see that. I've not watched that movie probably since two thousand one or something, so it's 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 been a long time. Yeah, I've I've seen it in the past ten years, I think. Oh yeah, I think so. Actually, I seem to remember you telling me that you saw that like sometime in the past. Maybe even more recently than that. I don't remember why. I think it was just it was streaming somewhere, and I decided to watch it, or I can't remember. But right. um, I mean, it's it, it's still a fine movie. It's just not yeah. not a top five. I don't think. And Mendez is still going after. All these years, I mean, that's uh, him that did uh, 1917 that comes out here in another week or yeah. two. So he's um, still out there making movies. Uh, the Matrix, uh, you had on one of the top, uh, what was the top five? 90s sci-fi. 90, 90s sci-fi. Yeah, so, Ma Matrix is a good movie. Yeah, Ma Matrix actually is probably a little more impressive now because... Um, Special effects-wise, I think it still holds up, especially because they use so many practical effects in it. Um, 
And it's still, a, it's still an enjoyable movie. Who was that like, the other day? Was that Bledsoe? Um, yeah. That texted in that group chat like about like watching it and thought it still really held up. Yeah, it, it really does. It's yeah. still a really fun movie. It's, it's a shame that the two movies that came after it kind of, I don't know if sullied this reputation, but sort of like just dragged that whole universe down. So I'm actually really curious to see what this fourth movie ends up being like. Yeah, I saw something the other day online, uh, I think it was on Reddit, where somebody apparently has spliced the second and third movie together into like one movie, and people are saying that it's actually much better, like they recut it. Um, I can see that. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there's I, there's good ideas in both of those movies. Sure. They're just they're both way too long, and they're both really kind of silly. I mean, it's yeah. one of the strengths and one of the failings of the Wachowskis is that they're very willing to take chances, and the the themes that interest them are definitely I don't know I don't want to say counterculture, but they're more progressive themes, and they're definitely. Like, very interested in identity politics and just the power of identity. And I think sometimes they put the cart before the horse a little bit there. And, like, they can get bogged down just in trying to trying to tell too much of a story that's rooted in that. Yeah. Um, I didn't see much of it. Just my, my wife watched that whatever that show is that was on Netflix that they did um, a year or two ago. Right. I can't remember what it was called. I watched the first three episodes of that. Yeah, and I felt the same. I felt just kind of like watching it when I was in the room. uh, That that same thing you're talking about was going on. Some really great ideas, some really great visuals, um, and then just some really, like, I don't know, like, leaden dialogue and just, I don't know, just bogging you down with, I don't know. Right. Just too much, I guess. All right. So what about Toy Story 2, which would probably, for a lot of people, be in a top five? Um, I mean, I like Toy Story 2 a lot. I didn't even, I make like a list before I make the final list of stuff that I would consider. Right. I didn't have Toy Story 2 on my yeah, okay. top list. I mean, I think Toy Story, Toy Story 2 isn't even one of the like top two animated movies of that year, honestly. Hmm. Like, I think that Iron Giant and Princess Mononoke are both hmm. far superior movies to Toy Story 2. Even though I think Toy Story, Toy Story 2 is great. I also think that... I don't know. That's hard to... I, it's it's hard to argue against that movie because that movie is really great. But... Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Uh, the Sixth Sense? Sixth Sense is fine. It's, again, another thing that's kind of like... With the you know the benefit of hindsight like looking back on it it's not nearly as important a film as it was seemed in 1999 sure. especially because Shyamalan has repeatedly just kind of shit all over himself in a lot of ways in terms of like yeah no understood I mean for the, for, the, for the time period extremely important for that like the few years like after this you know after its release and stuff like that but yeah over time it's kind of you know uh, being John Malkovich. I've, I struggle a lot with that movie. Um, because I think it's a really good movie, but I also, I don't know. It's another one where I feel like it felt more important at the time because yeah. it was, 
so unique. But then you look at somebody like Michael Gondry, who's, I think, has more artistry in his films and is more interesting in those stories that he's telling. And I don't know that I feel that, I mean, being John Malkovich is, is, is a good movie. Mm. It's probably like in the next top five mm. after these five to me, right? but just not, not quite there. There's things about the five that I picked that I like more yeah. overall than, than being John Malkovich. Uh, the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, I didn't even consider that. Yeah. That's another one that like that's more. I mean, obviously, it's like a it's an important film from the perspective that it kind of changed the course of what horror movies were for shit twenty years now because there still is a glut of found footage films that come out every year, um, and definitely one of the first movies that truly utilized like viral viral marketing mm-hmm. and the internet. To kind of build like a a mythos behind the movie that you were seeing. Yeah. Um. I don't think it holds up anymore. Like I think it's just kind of. I think you have to start creating like your own fan theories about it to make it like a decent film anymore, mm-hmm. and it's just kind of kind of silly. Right. But I know a lot of people still hold it in pretty high esteem. Uh, Three Kings. Three Kings is a really good movie. Yeah. I mean, there's not much else to say. That's another one that's like in that next five, I think. Right. Audition, we have talked about in Psychological Thrillers. Is that yeah. what it was? Yeah. And um, so that was back in October, if anybody was interested. But um, you're a huge fan of Audition. Yeah, and, that's why yeah. I precluded it from the list because yeah, sure. we'd already talked about it enough. Right. Uh, Boys Don't Cry. That's a really good movie. And I think, again, another one that I think is... is this it's a movie that's just as culturally relevant today because of its its sure. theme and it's yeah. a great performance by um Hilary Swank yeah and uh who Chloe Chloe Sevigny I guess is the other yeah. lead in that um that that's probably if not in the next top five like right on the cusp of that uh the Green Mile no nah, I don't like the Green Mile I think Green Mile shit <laughs> um Office Space I know it's comedy but I'm mean, Office Space is a fine movie. It's it it's almost been destroyed by how many like tropes and memes that it kind of spawned. Sure. Um, in the sense that like you almost can't take it seriously as a film just because it's become so much part of the pop culture. Okay. I understand what you're saying. And I think Office Space is a fine movie. I just don't think Office Space is like a great film or anything. American Pie. Uh, same thing. I don't know. Mar- American Pie is honestly not that funny anymore like it was much funnier but you know what it's like it's like it's like the scream series is what american pie is and that's what it did for you know teen sex comedies and then spawned like a glut after that you know kind of like revitalizing something that had been popular in the 80s and sort of fallen out of fashion in the 90s um it's got it's still got a couple of funny scenes to it but like once you know the punchline to that movie it's not the wit of the movie it's the shock of the movie so there's not much to like buoy it beyond yeah you know when you know what's coming it was, it was important for the time period but i, I, I right I, I fucking hate that movie um this i'm actually surprised isn't on your list since we had kind of discussed it, it was um election so i thought about that and election yeah. i think is another one that's in that next five yeah i think election's too small of a movie hmm. for me um election feels 
Election is a really well-crafted, well-acted film that doesn't really ultimately mean anything. Like, it's just very entertaining. It's very well done. <clears throat> In the moment, like, it's 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 a good watch, but I just don't know that it carries much weight beyond, like, the time that you watch it. The Virgin Suicides. Yeah, I don't care about that movie. Uh, we've never talked about this movie, but Tea with Mussolini? I've never seen You've it. You've never seen it? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Straight Story, the Lynch, David Lynch movie. I like Straight Story. I mean, Straight Story is a really good movie, but that... Again, that's that's probably that that's arguably top five. But I've only seen Straight Story once, and while I liked it, I, it doesn't like call to you to watch it. Yeah, again. I only I remember like brief bits of it. But I guess that I love Lynch for his weirdness so much that like the one Lynch like straightforward, just telling the straight narrative. I don't know. It's just the Hurricane. I don't know what you'd say about it either. That's a really good performance, but I don't yeah. know if that's a really good movie. I agree. Uh, Man <clears throat> on the Moon. The trailer for The Hurricane was the best part of The Hurricane, in addition to his performance. I don't remember the trailer. It's the um, the Dylan song oh, okay. about the hurricane, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, with scenes of him, like, you know, whatever, like, throughout the, the movie. Right, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard ever to argue against, you know, Denzel. In a performance, but I just don't think it's a good movie. What was the next one? Man on the Moon. That's another one that's a couple of really great performances. Um, just a, it's it's a fine movie. There's nothing like amazing about it as a movie, although it's a really incredible performance. We're getting into some like lesser stuff here, but um, well, this next one actually isn't, but after that we will be. Um, but I still need, feel I need to bring this up because 99 is The Phantom Menace. Jesus, I mean, because could, I mean, like considering like we're two thousand, we're twenty years removed, and it's like we just ended another big chapter right. of Star Wars. I mean, I mean that movie is absolute garbage. I don't right. know what else to say. Right, it cost me a lot of hours of my life, like dealing with that in the movie theater. Yeah. I mean, we were open twenty four hours a day for like a week because of that movie, and I worked really long shifts. What's your best Phantom Menace story? <sighs> So, the first night The Phantom Menace opens, so this is May 19th, 1999, I believe, was the opening date. Um, And we had our first showings come in, and there was probably, without exaggeration, a thousand people waiting in line to come in. And we had kept them in line, and they were spilling out, like, through the lobby, and out into, like, the parking lot, and just, like, this huge serpentine line of people. And there were these two fuckers that were, like, right at the front. And we let them in, and they start, like, shuffle running, like, down the hallway. Because we told them, like, not to run, but they were, like, so excited. <laughs> and the one guy was like, it's Theater 3, I see it. And the second guy was like, stay on target. Stay <laughs> on target. Jesus. Yeah. Was Mr. James there? He was. Yeah. He was. Mr. James, uh, like well-remembered employee from the 90s uh in the yeah regal movie theater. really great man frank worked the older older black gentleman that was um the head usher he was the ticket taker on the busiest side whatever whatever side we needed like to have the most crowd control he did yeah. and um you know would like clean the theaters he gave a speech before it about oh what did he say Oh, uh, he was talking about lightsabers, and I don't know, it was crazy. Yeah. Like, he was misusing, like, all kinds of Star Wars. Uh-huh. 
He did that same thing. He would talk to the lines uh, during the re-releases of the originals. Yeah. He would walk down the line and like you know, but everybody loved and respected Mr. James. Though. Yeah, he was he was he was he's a good man. Yeah. Um, the Mummy was that year the first Jesus. Mummy. I don't know what's what's to say about that movie. The fucking Mummy. Mummy's still around though. Is and it? then like yeah, the, they just redid the Mummy right with Tom Cruise. This oh, that's different Mummy. Yeah, that's a, that's. The the mummy you're talking about is like its own holy, realized whatever. Franchise. The Rock is the, the Rock ended up like the Rock was the Scorpion King, thing. well, right, which came out like two years after this or whatever, right. And the Rock is the biggest movie star on the planet right now. Wasn't at the time, no, not at the time. He was probably WWE champion. Some of the worst CGI I've ever seen in my life though was the Rock as the Scorpion King. Yes, really bad. Uh, I lost my place. Sleepy Hollow. Um, that's kind of the downturn of, um, Burton as a director, I think. I mean, Sleepy Hollow's okay, but it's, it's just weird for weird sake in a lot of ways. It's, you know, just the, taking almost like the aesthetic of Nightmare Before Christmas, um, and sort of like applying it to a physical setting. Um, it's got some really good visuals to it, but it's just, there's, there's nothing really like good about that movie galaxy quest uh i don't really care for galaxy quest i'm like the only person on the planet that's just like me it's weird yeah, yeah it's cause i mean it's i don't think it's great but it's just i think it's a, it's a, it's i think i think it's most people like it because it uh subverts their expectations of what they expected it to be not what they expected it to be the the quality of it right that it's actually like pretty good overall it's a very deft parody of the of a specific thing yeah the problem is that the specific thing that it's a deft parody of is something I don't care about at all. So, right. Uh, oh, this this could end up pissing a lot of people off. The Boondock Saints. Yeah, it's a terrible movie. It's one of the worst. It there's no reason for people to like that movie. It's it's it's. You should have put this at the end. Uh-huh. It, it's l- legitimately one of the most perfect barometers for whether or not someone understands what good dialogue and narrative is. And if someone loves the boondock saints, we don't, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know what to say to them. I mean, it's just, it's a bad opinion. Girl interrupted. God, you know what? You know what? You know what boondock, boondock saints is the ultimate like neckbeard masturbatory fantasy basically. And it's just I, the, the fact that people love that movie so much is like mind boggling. It's like fucking like if if there's a call to people who love Jesus, I don't know, like Joe Dirt or something. I mean, it's 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 basically like just as good a movie. Joe Dirt's probably a better movie. I think that's probably true. I don't like the movie either, but I I don't have quite as much ritual as you do. Um, I wouldn't care at all. Like, um, Suicide Kings is from around the same time mm-hmm. and. Not really a similar movie, but just like a similar like tone to it. Oh, they're all like these like Tarantino wannabe type right. things. Like that's it, and yeah. it's just like I don't know. Yeah, Eight Days in the Valley, um, right? Another garbage movie. Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. Two Days in the Valley. Two Days in the two Valley. Days, right. eight it's Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. Two things days to do in, in Denver valley, when right. you're dead. Yeah, things. Yeah, Mister. Yeah, right. Ugh. What a terrible time period. Though. Girl Interrupted's a good movie. Yeah, Girl Interrupted's good. 
Uh, the really li- good performances. The Limey. I like the Limey a lot. Yeah. Um, I love Terrence Stamp. So, um, that's that's a weird like probably top twenty movie for me. That again, it's one of those ones like you ask about election. Like I feel the same way about the Limey, where it's it's a good movie. Mm-hmm. It's just that like, what do you really say about it? Uh, the Austin Power sequel, uh, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Have you watched that recently? Yeah, uh, no, I haven't seen an Austin Powers movie since I saw a gold member in the the theater. Probably that's, that's unfortunate. Uh-huh. Uh, I even I didn't. I, I really love Austin Powers, and even I didn't see that in the theater. I mean, I was working at the theater. What are you gonna do? Oh right, yeah, I guess that's right. Um, oddly, as much as as big of a fan, I still really love the first Austin Powers. Watching the second one after all these years. Doesn't doesn't really doesn't hold up. Austin Powers still is one of my favorite like juvenile humor lines ever, which is the "Who does number two work for?" And yeah, right, yeah, Tom Arnold. Yeah, you tell that to yeah, uh-huh. yeah, you do love that line. Yeah, it's, it's a good line. <laughs> it's because Tom Arnold's so into it. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's and it's a good scene. <laughs> it's, he it's, it's he sells it really well. Right. Absolutely. Uh, That's a long list. Dogma. Dogma is not a good movie, but it doesn't deserve the hate that it gets. I think, yeah, no. I, 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 don't, I don't know that there's a, I didn't know there was a lot of hate for it. There is. Yeah. Dogma is a solid C. It's got a couple good scenes and some stuff that's kind of funny, but it's way too full of itself and way too yeah. interested in parody, parodying its subject matter. And it kind of makes it just like a waste of yeah. time. I think terrible casting in Linda Fiorentino as well. I think there's like she was um she's she, she was, was good in the last seduction. Yeah, she's really good. Red Rock West, she's good in that. She's too. good in that. Yeah, but I, I think she's I think she got exposed after a while being limited, and that's why. Well, you think Jade disappeared? You think Jade's what exposed her? I think Jade exposed a lot of <laughs> right. things. Jade, Jade is an awful movie. <laughs> Jade Jade definitely has to be one of the worst movies of that year, if not the worst. Jesus, Jade's one of the worst movies ever made. I think. <laughs> I saw that opening day. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, last one I have here, and I know you have a few, is Mystery Men. Oh, I like Mystery Men. Yeah, I think kind Mystery of, kind Men. Of ahead of time. I think Mystery Men is underrated in terms of like what it did for, or what it saw superhero movies as being. Right. You know, and like sure. the potential and like the ensemble cast type thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think just undone by the fact that like. It was no real, like, it, I don't know. It's just the wrong, wrong movie at the wrong time, yep. I guess. Yeah, if that was released, like, five years ago. Right, it would have been pretty, I mean, not, like, wildly successful, but definitely a lot more well-received, sure, I think, absolutely. than it is yeah. uh-huh. at present. Because it was, it's speaking, it's, it's speaking to something at that point. At the right. time, it was not speaking to anything. Um, so, you said a couple, you said Iron Giant, I know that. Yeah. What, what were the few that you had that I don't have on the uh, You had everything. Except, oh, um, Charisma, which is a Kayushi Kurosawa horror movie that's really good from that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, like, came close to making the top five because I just, I love that movie so much. But I just think it's, like, too unknown and I don't know how much you really yeah, say I, about it. I don't it. know that. I would have probably rather watched that. Um, right, than the number five movie, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Uh, and then Iron Giant and Princess Mononoke are the other two that you didn't have that I think are, are fantastic. Like, I love both of those movies. I think my dark secret is that how you feel about comedies is how I feel about animated yeah, things. Yeah, I think that's right. More people probably on your side than mine. Yeah, maybe. 
I don't they're know. all watching the boondock scenes too. <laughs> no they've already well maybe they are now because they've turned off the podcast right. after he's just offended <laughs> they're looking at the tattoo they got on their bicep <laughs> right <laughs> if you like the boondock scenes it's fine whatever <laughs> All right. You want to go ahead and jump into your list then? Yeah, please. <clears throat> Some of these are going to take a little bit, I think, um, for different reasons. So number five on your list is the Mike Lee film Topsy Turvy, starring Jim Broadbent, Leslie Manville, Timothy Spall, and Alan Cordjuner. Um, it has an 89% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 79% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about what this movie is and why you like it so much? Uh, it's basically... It's the story of um, Gilbert and Sullivan um, and the shaky period in their creative relationship. Um, Gilbert and Sullivan, if you're not familiar, uh, were a... Basically, like, um, lyric and music duo that did a bunch of um, operettas in late 1800s London at the Savoy Theater. Um, HMS Pinafore, uh, Pirates of Penzance... Um, the Mikado. Um, this movie's about their relationship leading up to them writing and producing The Mikado, which became one of their more successful operettas. Um, not really much else to say about it than that. I mean, like, plot-wise, it's just generally what the plot is. They have a production that's not as popular as any of their other productions because they're kind of just treading water. Um, they had... Uh, <clears throat> they would use like a trope of like a magic potion or a magic item that would change someone. Um, topsy turvydom is what they call it, where someone's world is flipped upside down. And that's what creates the tension in the, um, the, you know, the acts of the play. Um, so the Mikado is a more straightforward, um, look at like, and, and incredibly racist at this time, but look at like Japanese culture when Japanese culture was mostly unknown in the, um, the Western world. Uh, so it's mostly, yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a Mike Lee movie, so it's a lot of improvisation, um, a lot of just letting actors act, um, which is probably something that's kind of a turnoff for a lot of people, um, but I think when it works, it works really well, and really well-crafted period piece. Um, again, if you're not interested in the time period, probably not that interesting, but it's a good look at, like, I think... Um, especially like the politics of like a woman being a woman and what was acceptable in men not being acceptable in ladies and just to look at like how Britain that was still at the height of its like colonial powers kind of viewed the world. And, um, it's also one of my favorite musicals, the Mikado. So that really, um really kind of like speaks to me one of the reasons why i like it so much i like gilbert and sullivan a lot too that's one of my weird like great loves is like their their music i don't know that's about it really good performances i think and i think it's just important who, who specifically like well the actors that play gilbert and sullivan are really good um the guy that plays um uh whaley uh what's his last name the guy that owns the savoy um mm-hmm. doyle doily uh-huh. i can't remember his last name uh the women that play um 
Gilbert's wife and Sullivan's, like, muse are both really fantastic. The people that play, like, the actors of the Savoy all do a really good job. Um, and I don't know any of these actors' names, but the three guys that are, like, the main three male actors at the Savoy are all really good. Um, I just, I, I really like that kind of, like, comedy of manners type thing. Like, it's comedy where it's more based on wit and observation than, like, slapstick and pratfalls or whatever. Um, and the women that play the, they're the three little maids, um, yum, yum and whatever. Um, they do a really good job too. Really great performances. Actually the one that plays the main actress, the one that plays yum, yum, she's fantastic in it, I think. So you hate this movie, so come on. Who's the main actor, like the, the actor who plays the actor, like the, the kind of like jolly like guy. Which one? Maybe that's the problem. There's the thin one with the glasses. No, there's he's, he's the a bigger guy, like that's... the guy that looks like Reed Diamond, and then yeah. there's the guy that's kind of chubby. The guy that's chubby. I don't know what that actor's oh, okay. name is. He's everything I hate about British, like a lot of British movies. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> like that. He's everything I love about it. Yeah. See. Um, so yeah, I, I've never seen this movie before. I was actually really excited to like watch it since you had it on your top five, and I, um, yeah, I, I really hated this movie. Wait, I um, wish I had and... saved the text. <laughs> <laughs> I um, so to be fair, I mean, I think that the production design, the costume design, um, are amazing. Right, I, I think they're Exemplary all extremely well. Yeah, very, very, very beautiful movie. Um, I think the cinematography's good in it. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, a couple of the performances, I mean, Broadbent's good. Um, like you said, the muse for Sullivan is, is I like her. Um, Alan, Alan, uh, Jr., um, that plays Sullivan, I, um, thought is incredible. Like, it, I, I've never seen that guy before, mostly because he's a stage actor, it seems primarily, yeah. but, um, I, I, I thought he was really good excellent performance uh yeah and um <coughs> i have a I, I told you initially like maybe this is because i have such a bias against the time period because i would have thought the way this was filmed before i started reading in the gilbert and sullivan that this was in the uh like the 1900s to 1920s like era like which is a, a period of like british history so like uh, what's the damn show like that was popular in the past ten years? Oh, Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, like that kind of time period. I, I, this, I, there, something bad happened to me in a past life or something right. like during that time period because I hate it. I despise it. Like all that Agatha Christie bullshit. Like I, I just can't. I can't take it. Um. So I thought like maybe that's and then I like read about Gabriel Sullivan and realized like this is during like the Victor- Victorian era. Yeah. Eighteen eighteen ninety, I think. Yeah, like um like even even a little bit before that. Like it's like so this is like prime Victorian era. Right. Well they were make they were they were putting on productions from the eighteen seventies through yeah, right. the eighteen nineties. Uh-huh. And I think the Mikado is like late eighteen eighties ish. I think it's like eighty eighty seven maybe or something like that. If I remember correctly, just from reading. But so I was doubly shocked because the Victorian era is actually like one of my favorite time periods when you have 
you know, I, I love the poetry of that time period. Like, you know, you have like Tennyson as, you know, poet laureate. You have, you know, Doyle writing Sherlock Holmes, you know, gaslight, you know, gaslights on the streets and like the time period that I love, like that whole thing. So I was really shocked when you have a time period that interesting in a movie this dull. Uh, um, dull? You're dull. So, what? Okay, so, so. It, I'm going to just quickly list my bullet-pointed list of, like, the things I didn't like about this. All right, hit me. Okay. <laughs> so, first of all, the movie's split in, like, two halves. There's, like, kind of, like, the fallout and the travel in the first part and right. then kind of the production itself in the second. Yeah. And I felt that narratively it was just cut in half to where there's two movies and it's just, like... um you know how you know how like the like the the New Testament depends on like one line from the Old Testament, yeah. like you know um, about the about the Messiah. I felt like similar to like this this movie dealt with that. It's like if this one thing didn't happen, the second half had nothing to do with the first half um, in a lot of ways, and it just felt like it felt like this should have been a half hour the second half, and really they just made it into another hour and a half movie. Well, because they wanted to show you the production of the Mikado. Yes, right. And that's, so I think that in some ways leads it to move it like a snail's pace throughout the scenes themselves. Because each scene is very long and it gets bogged down in details from the time period and trivia and all of these things that aren't actually that interesting to the narrative itself. And it seems like I would start a scene and then the scene would end and there's all this information, and it's like only a few things mattered. And maybe that's because he's just letting the actors act. Like, and they're just kind of riffing on things and kind of going in their own directions at times. I don't know. But it felt like the important information is buried in overly long, jam-packed scenes. And it's all jam-packed verbally. Like, um... Nothing visually interesting is happening during those scenes because it's such like static shots. Um, And this might sound nitpicky, but the idea that it just is like medium shot, medium shot, you know, like two people in a medium shot, like, you know, long shot, medium shot, medium shot, close up, medium shot, medium shot is really boring. And so visually there's nothing like other than the beauty of the design and stuff like that like you know um it's like i'm getting all this information and i don't think it's you say you talk about like it being witty i didn't find it witty enough to really hold my interest and by the time i've gotten through the eighth five minute witty scene i'm just kind of tired at that point like i'm just kind of worn out and it would have been fine if it would have like ended with like kind of like the the start of the production, but no. Then it's another hour and a half of them showing the entire production, right? Where the guy that represents everything I hate about British film, his jolly face is just in my face <laughs> the entire time. It seems in that. And I'm not even going to say there's not good scenes in this. There are. There's like, you know, there there's scenes that work really well. Usually it's because all that extra shit's not there. And it's actually telling you something about a character or telling part of the narrative. 
but there's so much that's in this that's just not a part of any of that that I felt like there wasn't an even though there was an error it felt like there wasn't and it was bogged down and um there's probably like a few more points oh the characters I thought were all awful people like they're all really annoying um maybe you would enjoy the boondock saints <laughs> I I don't know I just I'm done <laughs> like that's I I I disagree with all of that like I think that I I grew up watching PBS mm-hmm. with my mom, so I grew up watching um, Mystery and right. all that stuff. Sure. You know, the Saturday evening, like 8 o'clock, like Agatha Christie or right. yeah. whatever his name is, the priest guy that's a detective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't mind the comedy of manners type thing from Victorian... Yeah, but that's the weird thing is I like Oscar Wilde like so much. But it's not like Okay, so there's there's just there's small scenes in the movie that I think are amazing. Like there's the scene where prior to getting um Do- Doily Cart is what his name is. Yeah. Prior to getting called before Cart, um, the three lead actors are enjoying lunch together. And two of them are slurping down oysters and the one is eating like a, like a like fried sole or something like that and it's just these small little like bits of dialogue that are just really humanizing and interesting but still like witty and there's a nice pace to it there's a scene where the two female leads are discussing why the one can't find a man and it boils down to the fact that she has a kid like because her husband died and nobody wants to take on the responsibility of this, like, other man's child. And their dialogue is really good. And, like, you learn that she's an alcoholic without them, like, making it some huge, like, plot point. But then it comes back up later, like, subtly. I don't know. There's just... And, again, and maybe this is, like, just my own bias. But I really like Gilbert and Sullivan. Like, I like those, you know, those plays. I like the fact that it takes... So here, I'll I'll kind of like devil's advocate myself and play into your point. They show 15 minutes of the sorcerer in the middle of this movie mm-hmm. for no reason other than to show 15 minutes of the sorcerer and kind of show you the sort of behind the scenes of how like certain things were accomplished at the Savoy. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really serve a whole lot of purpose to advance anything other than showing you that their previous works still have the power to draw an audience, which is like what it's trying to show you that basically the stuff, the last movie, the um, princess side or whatever, the one that's like the failure um, just wasn't very good. Like it's kind of the counterpoint to that is like, Hey, here's this one they did like five years before that still draws like a packed house and is still like really good. But beyond that, there's no point to it, but it's still, it's just like, like, I love it. Like, I love watching that scene. And even though there's not, like, a huge dramatic point to it, and it doesn't really even, like, go anywhere, like, it still is, it's it's enjoyable to me. I like that stuff. I don't know. Maybe I should watch Downton Abbey. Maybe you shouldn't. Right. I've never I, watched I Downton seriously Abbey. watched the first half hour of the first episode of Downton Abbey whenever, like, it was popular, when it first came out. Yeah. And, um... I mean, I think I downloaded it illegally at that point or something, but it's like I, I, I started watching it on my computer and I got like halfway through and um, 
I just press stop and closed the window out huh. and um I never ever watched it ever again. Like um that's honestly that's how it felt watching this to me. It's like the like the like it's just like oh my god. Like it's why I can never watch like something like The Crown. Like my mother loves that show. She's always telling me like it's so good. Like you should watch right. it. It's like I have no, I can't, I can't. You know, in like different strokes, I guess. I mean, Absolutely, I just, yeah, I, yeah. Look, look, this movie isn't Jade. Right. <laughs> like I'm not saying it is, but I am saying that through my own like subjective likes and dislikes, and I'm not even saying I. I it's like, I mean, to some degree, I'm glad I watched this movie. Um. Because there's things always to take away from stuff, like, uh, you know, whatever it is. But this is this is the most painful thing I've actually watched that you've put on any list on in this podcast before. Well, it was like, it, it, it like physically pained me at times. Maybe I put this on the list so that movie won't be Excalibur anymore. Because I love <laughs> maybe, Excalibur yeah. so much. Right. That was another uh, British. Like, so maybe it is. There's just something there with the Brits that... um. I don't know, that I just uh, have an issue with. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I seriously... Um, I take that climbing in that movie, like, over and over and over. Oh, no, that wasn't the climbing in that. That was Crawl, right? Crawl, that, right. That, where the climbing is. Uh, Excalibur was the riding through the same um, segment of forest over <laughs> yeah, and over. right. 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 So, yeah. right, whatever. Yeah. Um, and I'm positive that that forest is also what was in Company of Wolves, is the same forest. Sure, maybe positive okay well at least the rest of this is pretty easy <laughs> um <clears throat> compared to that because i think we're mostly on the same page on the rest of these all right so number four on your list is the talented mr ripley it is directed by anthony Minghella, sparring matt damon gwyneth paltrow jude law kate blanchett philip seymour hoffman has an 83 percent from critics 80 percent from audiences and tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much. Um, so it's an adaptation of the Patricia Highsmith novel of the same title, um, which is the first in, I think, a series of five novels about Tom Ripley, who's a serial killer slash small-time crook, um, forger, con man, whatever. Um, second film adaptation of the story, the first one being uh, <clears throat> Purple Noon. Uh, Rene Clement movie from um, the late 60s, 68, I think, is Purple Noon, with Elaine Delon. Um, follows uh, Tom Ripley, who's a con man who gets in the good graces of uh, the Greenleaf family, who are shipping magnets. Um, the father wants to send Tom to Italy to kind of talk some sense into his wayward son um, to come back home and take over the family business. Um, under the pretense that Tom, who was wearing a Princeton jacket at the time, like, pretends to have no uh, Dickie Greenleaf, played by Jude Law. Um, Tom goes, kind of falls in love with Dickie's lifestyle, um, with his girlfriend and sailing and listening to jazz. Uh, runs afoul of um, Dickie's friend, uh, Freddie, who kind of immediately susses out that Tom's not what he seems. And then Tom pretty much just kills people. Um, and then sort of assumes Dickie's identity, uh, is able to kind of like play off the fact that 
dicky like that they're two separate people and like trick people into thinking it and kind of implied at the end that he gets away with it mm-hmm. um which is how the highsmith novel ends in the sense that like He's gotten Dickie's fortune and he's sort of free, but he still has that idea in the back of his head that he's always going to be on the run from the cops, even if, like, no one's actively looking for him. Um, Anthony Mingola is a very competent Hollywood director. Um, There's nothing really flashy about his direction, but it's all very well done. Um, He makes the Italian countryside look beautiful. Like, there's a really authentic feel to like you know the seaside italian towns that they're in and rome and you know the places that they go um the beauty of this movie is in it's just the complexity of the story and sort of your almost disgusting desire to see tom ripley get away with it kind of like you want tom you kind of root for tom at points and it's because like even though he's a creep, he's sort of like a well-meaning creep. And Dickie Greenleaf is just such like a unctuous, I don't know, like slimy, like seducer kind of guy that impregnates a woman and then like leaves her and doesn't care. And it's while he's there with his girlfriend or fiance and just this guy that uses his good looks and his charm to get whatever he wants and... Tom Ripley's this guy that's never had anything because he comes from, like, a poor background, living in, like, this, like, dusty garret. Like, you know, where he's, like, rehearsing Charlie, like, listening to Charlie Parker so he can remember who Charlie Parker is so he can pretend that he liked jazz. Um, Really much more accurate adaptation of the novel than Purple Noon. Uh, Purple Noon ends, like, basically with the implication that Tom Ripley's been caught because I guess even... Like, in France in the 60s, you couldn't have, like, a villain, like, win in the end of a movie. Sure. Um, I actually watched Purple Noon yesterday, um, just because it, it it had been a little bit since I had watched it all the way through. Um, and I love Purple Noon. Like, I, it's amazing performance, like Elaine Delon's first, first performance, and just really, really well done movie. Um, and I find that, like, because I, I had no interest in Talented Mr. Ripley when it first came out. Because I like Purple Noon so much. And I was like, what's the point in seeing a remake of something that's already so great? Um, And I think I saw it just because I had nothing else to do one day, like, after work. And I was really impressed. Like, I think that Damon is really great in the role. I Mm -hmm. think that he plays this this chameleon-like psychopath so well um jude law i think is fantastic and if philip seymour hoffman i think is really great in it um gwyneth paltrow really good performances mm-hmm. um dickie's Mar- uh maude or whatever dickie's Mar- um, marja yeah. dickie's fiance and again just like really beautiful settings um some really great like super uncomfortable scenes like dickie catching tom trying on his clothes Um, just like Tom talking his way out of stuff and, um, Matt Damon plays it with such like a, like almost like earnest, like boy scout nervousness, like an Mm -hmm. intensity. Whereas like Elaine Delon is just like so smooth as Tom Ripley. And 
Matt Damon is not super smooth, but he still is like able to like quickly adapt and quickly give the right answers. And it's just it's it's a really well done thriller. And I really I really like it a lot. Yeah, you get the impression that this version of Tom Ripley is doesn't mean doesn't mean for this all to happen the way it goes down. But he adapts. Right. To the circumstances of being a murderer and all those kind of things. Like, it, you, you definitely get the feeling that, like, it wasn't the intent to go there and kill anybody and steal their identity. And that's just how it played out. Because he was hurt. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> um, so yeah, that, that makes the character pretty unique, I think, in some ways as, like, a kind of almost serial killer. I mean, like, that's, that's what he becomes eventually. Um, by the end of it really is right. and it's almost like it wasn't that wasn't the intention necessarily now i never read any of high Smith's novels and i don't know if is there any before this one do you this know this is the first one this is the and first then there's one. four after this and then he basically becomes like <clears throat> a, a non-cannibal like hannibal lecter throughout those books right where he like is in high society always so he and, he marries a woman well number one he gets the inheritance from greenleaf's family right um because he forges the will that gives yeah. him all his uh-huh. money and then he marries a woman who's a fashion magnet mm-hmm. or something like the heiress to like a fashion fortune i think mm-hmm. Is what she is, and um, so he has this lifestyle afforded to him where he's very wealthy, um, and still like murders like two or three people every book. Yeah, just to get out of situations and right because it's like even like the end when he kills his lover, like he's devastated by having to do it. So it's right. like it's not like he's a he's an opportunist and a sociopath. He's not a psychopath. Like, you know, he actually does have feelings like yes. about this stuff. Um, it, it's a, it's a really interesting character. I mean, it, and it didn't feel necessarily, even though the movie was like what, two thirty or something like that. Almost like yeah, it, yeah. it didn't feel it, uh, which was, I thought it was well paced. It's really well paced. And, um, I, you're right. I think the setting works really well. Like the, you know, the couple different settings that, that takes place in, I think Jude Law's incredible. Yes. as Dickie Greenleaf. Like, um, everybody's good in it. And then, it's so sad, like, watching these movies from this year and what we lost in Philip Seymour Hoffman. Agreed. Because that guy is so good in everything that he does and just adds, like, little quirks to every character that makes him so human. Like, and Freddie Miles here just being this unctuous right. prick but in the right by the second half of the movie, you sure. know, I mean, oh, um, I mean, he knows, he knows who Tom Ripley is right from the jump. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's, D- he's Dickie, so good. It's because Dickie is so egotistical that he can't see past the flattery that Tom gives him. And Freddie has enough self-awareness that he's not. Like the super playboy that Dickie is, that he is able to completely like look past Tom's like facade of culture and knowledge and whatever, yeah. and see like the nervous, panicky little man that doesn't actually know anything about what he's talking about. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it's, and it's, actively works to entrap him into saying things that make him seem like right. he's lying. Really, for no reason other than the fact that he can. I mean, not because I don't think he's trying to protect Dickie or anything, just because right. he just wants to. I don't know. It's it, it's a really good character. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I thought watching it 20 years later, I thought I, I feels just as modern today to me. It doesn't feel dated necessarily right. to 1999, despite obviously you look at it and God, they're all so young <laughs> in watching it. Like Damon's so young and looks yeah. so young. Um, yeah, it's so, crazy how young Matt Damon looks. Yeah. And, but other than that, like, you know, like from a filmmaking standpoint, like it, it looks extremely modern. Again, that's that's Anthony um, Minghella. Like yeah. he's he's just a very competent director. Yeah. Um, I don't know that. Like, I'm trying to think what else he's directed. He did um, English Patient. I guess is probably his big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which that movie. I think we've discussed this either off air. We might even discuss it like on air one time, but it's like a little bit somehow. And do you like that? You, you're not a big fan of that movie, right? I think English Patient has a lot of really, really good performances. And I think there's some really beautiful shots in English Patient. I just don't think it's like the amazing film that it was built up to be at the time. Yeah, there's some shit that movie does in terms of scene like screenwriting of like revealing character and stuff like that. There's like the 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 affair stuff in the Christmas office party. Like the way like that whole I just remember the way that whole scene works from like what you reveal through different shots leading to everything. It, it's like Whoever wrote that's a really good screenwriter. Yeah. Like, it doesn't... Even if the movie itself isn't, like, you know, one of the greatest movies of that year, even. Like, it's 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 really competently, like, done. He actually... He wrote... Uh, he wrote that? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, because he wrote this, too, right? Um, so, Jonathan Rosenbaum, um, who I, I think now has solidified himself to me as, like, as much as we mo- joke about Dave Kerr, like... Um, Rosenbaum's who took over at Chicago Reader. Um, Jonathan Rosenbaum is like become like my least favorite critic. Um, but he says that, um, Minghella and critic Frank Rich both sound like ventriloquist dummies from Miramax's publicity department as they tout this, uh, talent of Mr. Ripley as an uncommercial movie that says something profound about the 90s. Yet their adaptation of Highsmith's novel is commercial to the core. Um, blah, blah. He says, Damon plays a character as a closet homosexual and potential serial killer, which makes him about as um, salable as a uh, movie hero can get these days. Uh, Rene Clement filmed Highsmith's novel back in 60 as Purple Noon. That version was more conventional and derivative of Hitchcock, but at least didn't inflate the story as Minghella does to the proportions of Ben-Hur. As in Clement's film, the Mediterranean settings are sumptuous, and Minghella has updated the novel's action from the early to late 50s and made the errant son, played unconvincingly by Jude Law, a jazz musician with a, which allows for a pleasant, if unadventurous, score and many familiar tracks. Familiarity is the watchword of this overblown opus, which neglects holes in the plot to play up its postmodern theme of identity as pastiche, a clear case of the pot calling the kettle black. <clears throat> that's, that's, I don't even know what that means. Half of it. Um... What what is the Ben Hur like? What is I, that? I I think he's just making. I, I he makes a couple of references here. I guess to the idea that it's like just too much, like the entire movie that it's a too long, too okay, 
pack two full. Um, <clears throat> how long was uh, Purple Noon? Purple Noon's about two hours long. Two hours. Purple Noon cuts out. Basically, the entire end of this movie is not in Purple Noon. Um, I mean, there's really, like, he, he goes back to Maud, who's living in some small Italian, I don't think she's in Rome, she's somewhere, um, and more, I don't know. I mean, he's right about Purple Noon. It's much more Hitchcockian than this movie is. This movie's a lot more complex, I think, just in terms of, like, the interplay of the characters as opposed to the, like, tension of the mystery or whatever. Do you think this says something important about the 90s, though? Uh, no, I don't know. What. I, mean, I, don't, I can't think of what, like, Minghella would be talking about in terms of, like, making that claim. Maybe I, there's something to be don't. said about the fact that... I mean, Highsmith always kind of said that, um... Ripley was bisexual. Um, so maybe there is something about like gender identity and sexual identity. Sexual yeah. identity. Maybe, yeah. I don't And like having to hide who you are by like adapting other faces in yeah. order to protect like your true emotions. Yeah, I guess in ninety nine it is a little maybe still a little that's not shocking, that's not the right word, but it's like maybe it's a little risque. Like the the homosexual subplots of this in 1990 still, I don't I mean, think I, I don't I, think of it that way. Like myself, because like it didn't, it, I was nonplussed by all. Right, of that. I wouldn't like, even call them homosexual subplots. I would say it's homosexual subtext. Right. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that Freddie and um, Tom are both attracted to Dicky, not just in any kind of platonic right. way. But, I mean, they're in love with him. Sure. sure yeah. But it's not like, I don't know. I mean, that's that's a credit to the performances, I think. R- ridiculous that he thinks that Jude Law does not do a good job <laughs> right? as Dickie Greenleaf. Because yeah. Jude Law is, like, magnetic in this movie. Absolutely, yeah. It's actually, that's, when you said it's a shame, and I forgot about, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman being dead even, sadly. Um, I was saying it's a shame that Jude Law is kind of, like, mm. has had periods where he just fell off. Yeah. I think he's choosing to do that, though, isn't he? Like, he's just, um... yeah. Choosing to just not act, which is interesting because yeah, I mean when he when he when he's on, he's on. He's, right. You know. Okay. Any final thoughts on this? No, I mean I think it's definitely well worth watching. Like I would not recommend Topsy Turvy to everyone, but I think most people could enjoy Talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah. Okay, so number three on your list is <clears throat> Japanese film Kikajiro. Uh, it is. Uh, Directed and stars uh, in the primary role, uh, Takeshi Kitano. Uh, also stars, also known as uh, B. Takeshi, uh, through his stage name most of the time. And then it also stars Yusuke Sekiguchi and Yuko Daike. It has a 61% from critics and a 92% from audiences, uh, which is a weird score. Like, that's not one you see that often. Yeah, that is strange. Um, that's like those Witcher like reviews out there, like, right? <laughs> right now. So, uh, want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it? Um. So, Masao, Masao, I don't remember how you say his name. Um, what like eight or nine year old boy living in a small like poor area of Tokyo. Um, he's taken care of by his grandmother. Has never really known his mother. 
Uh, during summer vacation, he decides that he wants to finally go visit his mother. <clears throat> um, so he gets the titular Kikajiro character, um, is the husband of a woman that he knows from the neighborhood. Um, and she tells Kikajiro that he should take Masao to go to this faraway town where the mother lives so he can visit his mother. And after that point, it's just a road trip. Um, Kikajiro is a kind of a layabout and a gambler and not a man of like high character. Um, it's implied, I think, several times um, that he is maybe some former member of the Yakuza. Um, or at least has like the pretense that he was part of the Yakuza. Um, always trying to like kind of run a scam to get more money or whatever. But over the course of their travel, like to go to the town where the mother lives and then back again, um, develops a fatherly bond with Masao. Um, to the point where he, the journey is less about like finding the mom and more about like them bonding and becoming like close to each other. Um, some really heartbreaking stuff in it, um, but also some really funny scenes. Um, it's directed in a really weird style where it's got like, um, it's broken down into, uh, title carded chapters based on like the main beat of like whatever story is being told in that chapter. Um, which prop I guess might be off putting to some people. Hmm. Um, and often will present really traumatic or sad circumstances in a comedic light during those title scenes. Like, um, Masao almost gets molested at one point mm -hmm. and the title scene is the scary man with like a guy who's kind of like smiling. Um, Kikajiro gets beaten up by the Yakuza because he sort of exposes the fact that the circus, the, the carnival they're running is like all rigged. And it's, um, Title like Mr. Falls. Old, old, old Mr. Fell Down the Stairs or something yeah, like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, ultimately not like satisfying in the sense that, you know, when he goes to see his mother, she's moved on and has an entirely different family and a different last name and is living with this man and like a daughter. Um, but there's still some really like poignant and fantastic stuff that comes out of it. Uh, the interplay between those two is is incredible. Like they, you can feel them bonding with each other and you find yourself like really, even though he's like really gruff and kind of an asshole, like you find yourself kind of rooting for Kikajiru to like, you know, like help this kid. And like, he constantly is doing like small things to show favor or deference when you know, like in the beginning he had absolutely no interest in taking this kid like on this journey. Um, but really, a really, really pretty movie. It's got a very dreamlike quality to it in the way that, um, Takeshi films, uh, the scenes, um, again, some really weird stuff. Like there's these two bikers that they encounter several times and, um, Kikajiro makes them pretend to be fish. So the kid can like catch fish. And the one guy is like a fish and the other one's an octopus. And it's just, I don't know. Just a really good movie. I don't know. I, I've I've only seen it. This is maybe the second and a half time I've seen it. Maybe I've seen it three times all the way through. Um, once in like probably 2000 and then once like probably 15 years ago.
Um, but very poignant. Like, I think, again, just like a really... It, it's a really good, small story that Takeshi meant films in a way... It almost feels like a fairy tale, kind of, in the way that he films it. Including, like, adding these elements of, like, pseudo-fantasy to it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's... it's Yeah. So, like you said, it's framed from the perspective of the child... Like, of him making a scrapbook, almost, of, like, his summer vacation with right. Kikajiru, with Mr. All, and then you get to kind of see the evolution of Kikajiro's, like, emotional connection to the boy through the subtlety of Takeshi's acting. Um, and you kind of, like, see that kind of gruffness kind of uh, dissipate over time a little bit. Right. Because it's done from the boy's perspective, right? Like you get these like kind of like things like the dreams, like where yeah. the boy, like which I think are the things only things to me that like I think you could have just cut out. Oh, see, I love those parts. I I don't think they're poorly done. It just feels like it. It feels like they're too long almost, and it just like kind of like brings it to a halt a little bit. Like the the actual plot itself. Yeah, me. I mean, I I agree with like the Tengu scene, um, at the fair. With them like dancing in front of the um the yes, prayer tree. That's or the whatever. that's the main one. Like the the other one I'm the one where it's the scary man Right, yeah. Kinda mm. doing the like no yeah theater like the doing, whole... Yeah, like with kind of like the snake like motions. Yeah. Like, yeah. So I mean I I love the way that's filmed. I think it's good, but mm. I, I just wonder if you're gonna cut one out, I just cut both of them out, honestly. But um so yeah, I I, I think it's this is the second time I've seen it. I saw it once, probably around the same time, 2000, 2001, somewhere in there. And I thought it was, um, I thought it really held up. And I think that, like, uh, either I'm, I'm dying um, or um, <laughs> I, um, my, my, my internal, the, my internal walls are, like, breaking down. Like, because it's like, I, I became very emotional at different points in yeah. this movie. It makes you tear up. And um, part of it is the damn score. Yes, which is incredible in this movie, and then if you're listening to this, the um, the the track "Summer," which is with, like the main score throughout this, is what's you know I'm I'm using at the beginning of this episode here, um, but that damn song, like it would come on, and it would be these um, like it would be this like just like nothing scene where it's like there's this period of inactivity it's just them walking and you know you kind of maybe see their faces and stuff like that but like there's just this kind of inherent sadness that um to the whole thing but there's um this i guess joy too um i don't know if it has to do with like you know like a boy without like you know um, a father figure I, I don't know if that ties into it but like i've i found the you know i found myself like becoming emotional at different scenes in this right. um yeah, and um, so it, it, it certainly helped like create like a connection to me, like you know, with the, with the character. I think the boy himself is. <laughs> I mean, child actors are hard, but it's like the boy Japanese just, child actors too, especially. I think. Yeah, he just seems kind of wooden and morose all the time. Which, right? Why wouldn't you be? I suppose. I mean, um, but at the same time, it's like. That's probably, like, the weakest part to me. It didn't hurt the movie, but it's, like, probably, like, you know, him not really showing even when he's supposed to be happier. It's, like, not being able to show that emotion at times. But this is really Takeshi Kitano's movie. Like, you know, be Takeshi's movie sure. where he, um, 
um, he's really good in this. Like, and I, I think especially like the way he's able to convey, uh, con- internal conflict and like you know emotion and right. stuff like that subtly and through little things is um. It's really interesting too because he had gotten in a pretty bad, um, I think automobile accident prior to this mm. that left um one side of his face partially paralyzed. Mm. So he actually had lost like a lot of expressiveness that he had in his face and like watching him. Did he have ticks because of that? Do you know? Yeah, I think so. Is that what that whole thing? Because sometimes he, like his and I, I I've seen it in this in Battle Royale, I believe. Right. Yeah. Where like his the uh, left side of his face will just kind of like move up yep. like suddenly, yeah. Which I always thought was very distinctive, you know. But yeah, that makes sense then if it's like a car accident or something. I believe it was a car accident. Yeah, or some kind of trauma or something like that, like physical trauma. Yeah, it was either automobile or motorcycle accident, like, prior to the filming in this movie. Yeah. But, yeah, this is a movie that, like, um, uh, it's, like, life-affirming, I guess, in some ways. Like, that there's, um, you know, and that's probably, like, why I got, I probably got emotional is because it, like, you know, kind of, like, interacts and, like, shows that the world is, like, my worldview and kind of, like... uh, post holes in it and the idea that yeah sure life is miserable and life's terrible yeah. and that but like there's little moments of joy and happiness like along the way and that you know you don't necessarily have to like revisit the sins of the past upon like the future generations right sure it's definitely strongly implied that what happened to masao is the same thing that happened to kikajiru sure as a child which is like the mother left him at an early age and he never knew his mother so there's a scene where he goes yeah. to the, her nursing home um, with Fatso Biker and uh, can't bring himself to talk to her. Mm-hmm. And she still seems like a miserable person, like in the brief scene you sure. see her in the nursing home. And, yeah. you know, him like being willing to kind of like help to make sure that Masao doesn't have the same childhood that he had. Is um, it's it's really poignant, really well done. Yeah, it is. No, uh, yeah. And I, I didn't think of it from the that perspective of trauma. Um, but oddly, I don't think that's going to be like the last time in the next two movies, even no. maybe like we're going to talk, you know, that, that's, yeah, probably that, pretty at length in both of them. Right. Um, talking about trauma being passed on. Um, <clears throat> okay. Any final thoughts on this? No, I think it's definitely worth checking out. Um, you have to run it off of prime, but I think it's uh what is it? Two hours exactly. Or yeah, two hours, and one minute or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So it's, so um, a little long, but not like definitely worth watching. Yeah, so. absolutely. Okay, let's go ahead and move on to number two. Yep. Okay, so number two on your list is Fight Club, directed by David Fincher, starring Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, Helena Bonham Carter, Meatloaf, and Jared Leto. Has a 79% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, has a 96% from audiences. Want to tell us, I guess, just a little bit about this movie and what you like about it so much? Uh, so the movie follows Edward Norton as an unnamed protagonist who's a white-collar insurance adjuster who's dissatisfied with, like, his life, um, meets soap salesman Tyler Durden on a flight. Um, they sort of bond and form a bond through like beating each other up that turns into a fight club, which is a phenomena that grows and spreads throughout the country. Um, at Tyler Durden, like traveling around the country, 
ostensibly selling his soap, like starting these clubs up, um, where it's men who are dissatisfied with like their position in society. Uh, typically guys who are like working class, <clears throat> it's implied like people that are in the service industry, just basically like regaining their masculinity by beating the shit out of each other. Um, in these underground, like, you know, fight clubs, um, also follows Durden and Norton's relationship with, uh, Marla Singer played by Helena Bonham Carter, who's a morally and financially like destitute woman that, um, kind of like latches on to Durden's wild, I don't know what you would call it, like counterculture persona. Um, Norton finds out that they're planning like this, they're becoming organized like these clubs and they're planning the large scale, large scale destruction of basically like the American credit industry in order to sort of reset everybody to zero. Um, and then fights against it through to the end of the movie. Um, which spoiler is that Norton is Tyler Durden, that there's not two people that is basically him fighting against his own, like, more primal urges, which is represented by the Pitt character. Um, and in the end, like, they do destroy, like, all these buildings to the tune of, uh, the Pixies, Where Is My Mind? Um, the other, the other thing I thought about using for the intro to mm, this episode, uh, this week was probably a lot more, leaving us a lot more open to, like, copyright claims i was just gonna use the instrumental (laughs) um it's a visually stunning movie Uh, there's it's fincher at his best um some fourth wall breaking uh just really i don't know beautifully shot like for being such like a grimy dirty movie there's a lot of beauty to it um thematically it's a really complicated film to look at especially from like our modern perspective um it's sort of a celebration of what we would almost call toxic masculinity today in the sense of like men like regaining their i don't know like their own feelings of like self-ownership and self-worth through like like physical altercation Um, And sort of, like, rejecting the commercialized, like, advertisement-strewn world that we live in for a much more basic, like, naturalistic lifestyle. Um, Also sort of a condemnation of the culture of, like, support groups and the idea that, like... Norton at first is gaining, like, the only way he can sleep is by going and listening to other people's misery. Mm-hmm. Um, and Marla Singer is kind of the same way. Like, she gains, like, this visceral, like, thrill of her own life by listening to other people who are, like, dying or who have survived, like, some kind of terrible tragedy. Um, it was interesting because it was not particularly successful when it was first released like financially but there was a lot of people that saw it and then would talk about it and then more people would see it and especially when it was released on dvd it just became kind of this like cult phenomenon where everybody like saw fight club and loved fight club and almost like became its own 
in some ways like a extrapolation on the theme of the movie, which is like this underground thing that you sort of talked about quietly with like your friends and like mm. you knew about and people liked it and watched it, but it wasn't like generally accepted by, you know, I'm, I'm actually not surprised. A lot of times I'm surprised by like critic scores or audience scores, but I'm really not surprised by that. Um, like the wide gap between sure the critical, because it was not like super well received when it first came out. Um, again, like it's, it's, so I was watching this movie I watched it uh, Friday, I guess, and I really felt kind of torn because Pitt and Norton and um, Bottom Carter are all really great in this movie. Like, there's fantastic performances, especially Pitt and Norton, like the way they play off each other. Um, it's really, like, amazing, really well done. There's a lot of very well-crafted dialogue here, but... The question is, like, are the concepts and ideas in this movie something that are still sustainable, like, today? And I think that on one hand, from, like, a general, like, societal perspective, probably not. But then I think you see a lot of, like, <clears throat> I don't know if it's influence from this movie, but definitely a lot of the same, like, themes and ideas and stuff like the Proud Boys, for instance. Mm -hmm. And just these groups of people who feel marginalized by the way the society views masculinity in general and has kind of like almost made it more taboo to be like a tough you know man that can whatever this stands up for himself and kind of goes against like the cultural norms and it makes it um it definitely makes it, I think, like, relevant and vital to watch it today. Even from a perspective of, like, this is absolutely, like, not what we want people to grow up to be. But I think there's a lot of appeal in it still, too, to people who... Well, it's interesting. During the time period, reading through the reviews, some people mistake this for a fascist movie. Like, and I think misunderstand the movie's the, the filmmaker's perspective on the things that are happening in this movie. Right. Ebert, interestingly, realizes that it's not a fascist creed. I mean, because he's, I think, reasonable <laughs> and, right. and can actually understand the movies that he watches most of the time. But he does question the responsibility of the movie in the sense that those watching it may not understand sure. what it's trying to say um and i think that probably still holds true to this day is there's that there's that there's that question of whether it's responsible to make which i will always side with the artists right. on that and say that they can make whatever they want and if people misunderstand it then that's the way it is very much like the arguments that took place this year over mm -hmm. uh, joker yeah, um, exactly and Similar I, ideologies behind those movies, too. Sure. Um, and I actually think this movie takes much greater pains to show that it doesn't buy into those things, necessarily. Even if there's, like, some things that are tongue-in-cheek, like, like you said, the support group thing. Obviously, it's there's a little bit of a send-up there, 
But I also don't think that David Fincher or anybody or, or is going to sit there and say, like, this is the way you should behave by going to using support group meetings and for your oh, own edification. No, you know, you know what I mean? Like, the, there's a little bit of, like, tongue-in-cheek, like, send up the idea of support groups. But at the same time, like, the the lengths that it's taken is there's no support to that. Like, there's no, they're, they're not saying this is the way you should live your life. Fight Club itself. Turns out to be a, a mockery. It's not, it's not, it, it wasn't like, you know, it's like they're going to the furthest extreme, like with the Fight Club stuff into the anarchy, anti-capitalist stuff. Right. But it's like, it ends up being like that Fight Club itself ended up just being a sham in, in route to the self-edification of this one person who, and his own fucked up psyche. Right. You know, this kind of like modern day, like, you know, like fucked up Messiah, like figure that like, you know, is looking for his own satisfaction out of life. And this is where he's getting it here. And now that's not working anymore. So he's going to get it here. And like, I, I think the condemnation, I mean, at the end, Tyler Durden is condemned. Like the idea of him. Um, by himself, you know, and the more extreme ideas of him, right? The more extreme, right? Absolutely, you know. I mean, I don't think the dissatisfaction with consumer culture and all that kind of stuff. I mean, those are, I think, are the legitimate criticisms in this movie that are taking place. It's like the the answers are not condoned, right, by the filmmakers in this. I think there's some sympathy. With some of the ideas. But I don't think any of it's condoned. Yeah. I I don't think beating the shit out of each other is the answer to David Fincher. But there's no consequence to it. There's no consequence to any of that. No, sure. I mean, ultimately, it's like... Except, I mean, there's no consequence. But, I mean, ultimately, the hero of the film realizes that it's all like it's 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 fucked up and it's all went too far and it's not the right way to do things does he though i think so because he's kind of standing tall at the end with his girlfriend like watching the pillars of society collapse around him and in explosions and it was always him it was just a part of himself that he refused to acknowledge Mm mm-hmm and him shooting himself in the face at the end just brings those two disparate halves together. It doesn't like eliminate Tyler Durden. It just lets him accept that he is Tyler Durden. Yeah, I don't. I, I, and I, it's a fantasy. Like I, I don't believe any of it is like actually being condoned. Condoned, right? But I think so. I think from Fincher's perspective, and this is just like me talking out my ass for the most part, but. I think from Fincher's perspective, the movie is about identity mm-hmm. and you finding your place in a world that tries to compartmentalize you through what you buy and what where you work and how much you earn and what you do and that you're more than that as an individual. From a completely masculine perspective, though, mm-hmm. I mean, for as good a performance as Marla Singer is as a character she's a tool or whatever. She's a thing that he's using to find himself. Sure. She's not finding herself within it. I mean, her, she's basically like 
mentally and verbally abused by him and keeps coming yeah. back. Right. And ultimately because she really likes having sex with him and she finds him interesting. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good message, honestly. Even if it is just fantasy and it's like you're not meant to take that out of it. I think that I think that you and you know the two of us and like reasonable people can watch that and realize that that's not what the movie's about. But I think there's some people that can't. Oh, I understood. And I'll never blame like art for whatever someone's like mental illness or inability to like rationalize or synthesize, I guess, like, you know, meaning from like an idea in a film. But there was a lot of imitation for this, you know, and a lot of people that did form like, underground fight clubs because they were inspired by this movie absolutely and i think that speaks to what like is at the core of like a lot of our problems today especially in again like i bring up the proud boys i mean i think that's like well look it's not that it doesn't raise interesting questions about society and the way that we live it absolutely does i mean like the idea that you know men have lost manliness and this is coming from like a dude who absolutely like you know loves the gilmore girls um like i get to some degree what it was saying especially during the time period that was released um a generation of men raised by women like i like i get that from a generational perspective like it's true like the divorce rate from the baby boom generation, like, you know, increased radically, like, you know, during those times, like, you know, there was a lot of like latchkey kids. There was a lot of like boys being raised without father figures. A lot of times, um, that happens. And do I think that, you know, they're being raised by mothers and like, does that affect like the, uh, the gender psyche in some way, like generationally? Absolutely. It does. Um, (coughs) I think it's a, joke and a fantasy that you know the idea that they're going to the extreme of the only way that they can prove their masculinity is through beating the shit out of one another in basements of you know buildings i i think that's obvious that that's not the right way to go about things the fact that other people mimic that shows that the condition that it's raising the question about might actually be there might be something to it but it's not, I don't think it's condoning that solution. And then you get to the shit that you're talking about now with Proud Boys. I mean, like, fuck those people. Like, I mean, um. Right, right. Like, but what I'm saying is, like, you say that it doesn't condone it, but where does it condemn it? I don't know. I think the it's, whole. It's, it's, it's a tacit condoning of the fact that it's effective. I don't, I don't know. I don't see it. I, I don't see it at any point where. And does it have to condemn it to. Like, in order to not condone it? I think it at least needs to... I don't know, marginalize it or minimize it in some way. And it's not about them, like... I don't know. I think the choice that the protagonist of this, which is the Norton character, takes at the end to end Tyler Durden... See, I don't agree with you. I don't think that's the choice that he makes. The choice he makes is to bring himself back together. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. All he's doing is like 
I mean, in certain ways, like curing his 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 multiple personality disorder. Mm. I was in a weird place this year, or whatever. However, he says it, like his last line in the movie when he's talking to Marla, and it's like he still stands there. He's not telling them to stop it or to like whatever. They just he lets it happen. Like he's still. Well, I mean, it was at the point of no return at that point, right? But he stands there and calmly watches it, holding his girlfriend's hand. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Again, like I agree. Like I, don't I mean, he. En- I mean, look, they changed the ending for the movie. It's like he kills himself in the. In the book. Like. And I think that was like the intent here, to some degree. And it gets fucked up, and it's like, I I think, and maybe that's why I'm saying, like, I just, I'm positive that I'm right, is that, like, the intent there, I think, was to kill himself, and it doesn't go right, and he ends up in, that kind of, like, breaks the spell or whatever, brings the two halves together, but I think the intent was to end that part of his personality, like, end his whole life. And it just doesn't happen. And I think that's the condemnation. So in some ways, even though I do like this ending better, because I think suicide at the end of a story is, unless it's under the right conditions, is kind of just a weak ending to a movie. So I do like this better because I, you're right. It does leave you little question marks. It's the reason we're able to have this conversation right now. Yeah. But um, I, I, I ultimately still think it's a condemnation of, the actions of Tyler Durden throughout this, even if it is himself. I mean, I don't think it's meant as a manifesto or anything of the sort, but I also, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about like thematically about it again. Like I felt like it was out of all the movies that we watched for this. It was the one that made me question the basic, like, core premise of the movie. Like, it's one where I don't know. Because even in The Joker, mm-hmm. which was, you know, that's that that's, that's a good analogy. 20 mm-hmm. years hence. Like, sure. basically, similar ideas, similar presentation in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. At the end, The Joker is still just a psychopath. Right. Like, whether you believe anything in that movie actually happened or whatever he's crazy Mm -hmm. and that's that's the end of that movie is like he's murdering people in this mental institution not standing tall like among the ruins of society that he created Mm -hmm. where like the last thing his people say about him like oh that's a tough motherfucker you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like it's all very much like this is your hero of this movie. Like mm. the guy that is doing all these things, whether he killed Tyler Durden or not, it still is him. He's still Tyler Durden and he still is the hero at the end, mm. you know? So it's not like at least the Joker has the decency to like lock him away, you know, like this sure. guy, there's no consequence. Right. Even blowing his half his face off, there's no consequence to it because he still is just like talking and fine and just get me some gauze, I'll be all right. Yeah, you know, I don't. I don't know how you don't look at like the rest of Fincher's filmography and realize that that's not the case. Well, because I think you have to look at it as a microcosm of its own thing. Because there's plenty of people that are going to watch this movie and not think about fucking 
Panic Room or Alien Three or something. Else. Sure. <laughs> Uh, that, that was a, that was a low key minimizing of David Fincher. Um, I <laughs> yeah, I mean, I right, but it's like you you can't help with that with anything, right? I and I so I don't know, like I don't I don't have any problems with it. Like, look, I don't necessarily, from a personal standpoint, have any problems with it. It doesn't make yeah. me want to go out and like punch right. somebody in the face. Yeah, but. But it's like, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I get what you're saying, but it's like, it's like, I don't see any, there's no solution to it. Like, to me, like, I mean, to me, it's like you're, you're potentially censoring yourself. I don't think you censor it. I just think that it's something that needs to have, like, additional conversation with it. Hmm. And I think there's a lot of people that aren't hmm. cognizant enough. I don't know. Because yeah. I, I, cause I don't think it's a parody. I don't think it's satire. Not like, no. not fully anyway. I, think I don't it's, think it's uh, any of those. I, I, I think, I think that, I think there's a lot of stuff that's a joke, but I don't think it's right, satire I, or Right, 100% I think yeah. it's a dark comedy. Yeah. Like it's like the blackest comedy. Right, maybe. Sure. But, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just. I think it's a movie that still is relevant today, and I think it's a movie that bears a lot of conversation. Absolutely, in yeah. watching it, and I think it might be more relevant today than it was then. Honestly, uh, socially, I, yeah. I, I think absolutely. Generationally, it's definitely of Gen X, and uh, you know, I, I think if well, you talk right, about it generationally, it's about, it's about our generation, like. Yeah. Turning away from, I don't know, like what our parents created to sure. like find ourselves and become like individuals and absolutely people that can think for ourselves and yeah. live a life outside of like Ikea, basically. Right, right, right. yeah. Um, but I mean, that that's the way of the world. You right. know what I mean? Like yeah. we're still living in, living in a world where most people are defined by their possessions and their, you know, their job. And... Not that I, like, have any whatever. Like, I like him at all. But, like, you look like Henry David Thoreau or something like that. I mean, it's the same, you know, man existing outside of society, basically. Or finding his place in the world outside of, like, society's constraints that are put on him. The only thing... Okay, so maybe... Which is, which is all bullshit in the first place, but... Right, right, right. Go ahead. Maybe the condemnation or maybe the undercutting of anything that he says is the fact that he just is crazy like he's just beating the shit out of himself in an empty parking lot Mm -hmm. and i don't know like he gets past it somehow by finally confronting that it is him and not something else like that it's not and then excises that part of him like it's, it's not this external force that's causing these things to happen to him it's him doing it to himself and he just needs to realize that and control it instead of like that's the generational point that I think is being yeah made. I, I'm I'm I, that's that's why I, I, maybe I didn't clarify that but I, I think that's what's being said is that like that's that ultimately all like the the shit is honestly it's like a it's not a condemnation of Gen X but it's like you know it's kind of like this like hey you do it to yourself right 
But again, like I think there's a lot of appeal that people see to the overall idea of Tyler Durden as a like a hero. Sure. You right. know, I um, like I said I I don't know. I I get what you're saying absolutely. I mean, I I get what the critics were saying, especially like Ebert saying that there's some social responsibility that this film might not have that's there and I I understand but I I don't know. I don't know what to do about that. So, but Fincher is amazing at directing this movie. One yes. of the things that you and I talked about yesterday that I had, and I've seen this movie probably four or five times, that I had never really noticed before is just how many times Tyler Durden is cut into <laughs> individual frames of the film. Like mm-hmm. the Brad Pitt version of Tyler Durden. Right, yeah. Um, especially early on. It's like at least like five or six times in the first like 15 minutes of the movie mm-hmm. where he just like pops up in like a single frame flash. Yeah. Um, we actually always thought it was funny, like as projectionists, when we watched this movie, because it is something you can do. Um, you know, we used to, like, every once in a while, like, splice, like, a couple seconds into something just because it was funny. Because mm-hmm. um, you can, like, like, no one really notices it, but you can definitely, like, get away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always thought that was amusing, that idea. Yeah. Of, like, fighting the man by, like, in. Not that we had any access to pornography, obviously, but I don't know. I think it still is definitely a movie that should be watched today and talked about. Yeah. And and it seems like it is. I mean, it seems like it still has that cult following to this day. Oh, yeah. And, and it's for all the right reasons. It's, I mean, like you said, it's dark, but it's still funny. Um, It's a funny movie. Like, one of, like, Ed Norton's top roles. Yes. You know, ever. Um, one of, one of, I mean, one of Pitt's top roles, I think like his top five role probably for Brad yes. Pitt. Yeah. It's uh, definitely like a big step up from seven and, um, 12 monkeys. Maybe not a big step up from 12 monkeys, yeah. but definitely like that really. It's more controlled, you know, right, it's, exactly. it's, it's less of like the, yeah, the, he doesn't have that manic, like zit, 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 right, like, energy yeah. to him. Sure. It's like mania, but like a controlled mania. Right, yeah. Um, no, you can definitely see the improvement, I think, of Pitt as an actor by the time yeah. he gets to this movie. Um, but yeah, and I love the supporting cast in it, like, right. you know, for, of all those characters. and um, Yeah, so Meatloaf. Yeah. Really that, good. All that's really well done. It's like, it's um, it has a good visual aesthetic to it. I think that fits the story very well. Um, yeah, it's a solid movie, like, right. still yeah. to this day. and. Definitely one of the more important movies from this year. One Absolutely. of the more vital. It might be, I, I don't know, it might be the most important movie to some degree in the long term. Yeah, that might be true. Um, like, Hard to argue against number one, though. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how, like, the general public feels about this movie or how many of you even watched it, I'll be honest. I think, you know. So, number one on your list... Um, is Magnolia, uh, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Tom Cruise, Jason Robards, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Julianne Moore, John C. Riley, Melora Walters, William H. Macy, Philip Baker Hall, and I could just keep going on, yeah. Louis Guzman. Like, you know, so many different people um, are in this, like, uh, like a true opus, I think. Um, you want to, oh, geez, I don't even know how you would do this. Um, do you want to try to tell people a little bit about this movie if they haven't seen it and what you like about it so much? So it's a series of interconnected stories that take place over the course of one day and one night um, in, where is that, like Hollywood, I guess, basically. Yeah. 
um, involving people who have had trauma in their past and are currently at a point in their lives where they're not 100% happy with how their life is going or are still trying to deal with like some personal demons or trying to find themselves. I mean, again, this is like one of the most common themes, I think, of like movies of this year. Maybe it was like, I don't know what would cause that, but there really is a lot of like identity in these movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at like this and Fight Club and... Talent Mr. Ripley. Yeah, American Beauty is another right, one that's right, yeah. very much about being John Malkovich. Like, all of right, it is about, yeah. like, what makes you you. Mm-hmm. And... Matrix? What? Yeah, <laughs> definitely, 100%. Yeah. You know, I was wondering, like, I was thinking about this today in the 99 thing. Um, I wonder if it had something to do with, like, that whole Y2K feeling. Like, just that idea that people had that, like, things were going to change and the world was going to be different and maybe there's, like, some... I, I think I, I think that uh, stress could be part of it. Uh, that that you know, I, I I would I look at it much more. I think from a generational standpoint again, because I, I I've always made the argument that like Gen X, I mean, or is like a lost generation in some ways, and I and I mean that in the sense of like they don't they've never they never knew what to do with themselves. Right. You know, and I think that I, I've always made the argument that with the boomers, it's like because that that generation is has a schism in it from the 60s and 70s to the 80s and 90s, that Generation X heard these heroic tales of turning on, tuning in and dropping out or um, fighting the system and grew up with the reality of people who had been through all that, been through the, the drug abuse that goes with it, and had come out the other side in a Reagan era, 80s, where consumerism is king, and they didn't know how to deal with that disparity between the the myth and the reality. Yeah. And ultimately, the protest... When all is said and done, ultimately the protest, the the dropping out, like all that stuff failed. Right. And I, I, I always believe that Gen X was in this um, state where it's like, well, what the hell do you do? Not even that it failed, just that it was co-opted. Sure. Like you had Abby sure. Hoffman, who's like this sure. right. counterculture. Make war against machines. Right. Like icon. Right. Becoming a multimillionaire sure. or consultant in the 1980s. Sure. Like I remember. Right. Well, it's the, it's the ending. You don't want to discuss this, but it's just one point that I'll make is um the very ending of Mad Men is Don Draper going to like this like little like almost like commune retreat at the end of that right. show and finding it seems inner peace and then it cuts to the coke commercial where he's now co-opted right that inner peace into a commercial product and that's what the whole story of the baby boom generation is to me in a lot of ways i think what it did is it left xers with no choice where it's like it doesn't matter whether you you know dropping out doesn't work protesting doesn't work you know obviously like you know being part of the system doesn't work so i think that they didn't none of them knew who the hell they were and it created an identity crisis and i think that's why you also see like an emotional dropping out among the generation is because of that and 
it be, things become much more morally gray. And so, yeah, I think the identity that you see in these movies is people trying to figure out how the hell do you live a life in this kind of, for lack of a term, postmodern world yeah. where nothing you do, nothing has been done before really is successful. Right. Especially because we're all coming into the age of majority at that point, too, in 1999. Sure. Sure. Um, I mean, I was 22, sure. I guess, when this movie came out. And I, I'm pretty sure a lot of these people are Gen Xers that are making these movies. I mean, certainly Paul Thomas Anderson is yeah. at this point. You know, I mean. Fincher, too, I think. Fincher is definitely. A, like right he's definitely an Xer. Like, no, absolutely, he's an Xer. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Talk about Magnolia. Right. Um, it's basically the idea behind the movie is kind of narrated in the opening, like, segment and then, like, touched back upon a couple times throughout is the idea that there's something more than chance that leads to, like, a series of interconnected events, like, causing things to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's really the beauty of the movie is that it really, it's, it's groups of characters that at first don't seem to have a connection but ultimately connect almost like the six degrees of separation like to each other throughout the events of the movie like both in ways that they don't realize and like by meeting each other like through the events of the movie um i mean for being like so many disparate storylines like anderson does an amazing job of weaving it all together Mm -hmm. and making like one coherent cohesive narrative um through music and through the score and the soundtrack both um, do a great job of like blending them together, but also through just like the sort of the trauma that these people are working through, mm-hmm. like the things that have affected them in their lives um, through the game show, you know, in terms right. of like um, William H. Macy and uh, Seymour the Kid. I can't, I can't remember that actor's name. Blackman, I think, right? Something. I don't know. Is the kid's name? Um, Stanley is the. Yeah, Stanley. That's it. Sorry, Stanley. <clears throat> um, and then the idea of like a parent like letting you down, like both um, Jimmy Gator like molesting his daughter and um, uh, Frank Mackey's dad uh, abandoning right. him to his dying mother, sure. like to go and be successful in television. Right. Yeah. Um. And then just, like, how how you carry it and how you deal with it. And so, you know, I mean, like, people self-medicate and people mm. kind develop, of... Develop harmful ideologies. Right. Like, abandon their yeah. um, their upbringing is to become almost the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's one of the more fascinating things. And, like, the way that Anderson writes this movie and, like, directs it is it's amazing. That, like, a lesser director would beat you over the head with the idea that Frank Mackey at 14 years old, had to care for his dying mother. Mm-hmm. And that caused him to completely, like, dismiss all women because he was never going to let someone do that to him again. Sure. But never comes out and says that. Right. He doesn't have some speech where he, like, says these things. No. You just infer it through, like, really amazing dialogue and, like, yeah. incredibly, like, well-acted scenes. Um. To the point a less thoughtful observer might not understand why. Yeah. But I like, mean, I... He's like a woman hater considering, you know, his father was... Lived the life of a woman hater. Right. He's just... He's yeah. he's going to objectify women to the point where a woman can't hurt him. Right. 
And that's just how he's going to live his life. Sure. And that's how he makes his money, by teaching other men to do the same thing. Right. Um, his father was doing it for his own gratification, where he's doing it for his own protection, though. Right. Right. But the end result's the same. Absolutely. Because they both become no, right. yeah. super wealthy as a result. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess it's implied that Frank Mackey's super wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but just really fantastic performances. Um, every actor excellent uh there's an interesting thing you know you we were talking about this yesterday a little bit in that um the john c Riley character is just so so complex for being like at its core just like this moralistic like nice guy mm-hmm. but the fact that he's able to put that aside for the benefit of someone else because he realizes that he can be judgmental and he can be controlling and he just he wants to just like have someone love him and yeah and i guess that's like the big theme too of the movie is like what do you do to find someone like that can love you and you can love back right like i've got i've got all this love but i don't know where to put it yeah one of the yeah (laughs) one of the greatest lines in the movie sure um but really well filmed um i'll always love boogie nights like, that will always have a special place in my heart. But I think Magnolia might be P.T. Anderson's best film. Um, definitely there's a case to be made that it's his best film. Yeah. For a guy that's made some amazing movies, too, that's saying something. Absolutely. I mean, it's 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 always been my favorite film of his. I mean, I've always argued that I think it's his best film. But, look, that guy's made a few movies that are out of this world so it's really hard you know I, I can see cases for all of them you know but he's only made one movie that i don't particularly care for sure in um the master the master but he, i don't even know if i don't care for it i just think that i don't know i just think it's i think it's the least focused of all of his movies yeah well it's interesting because the the um amalgamation here of like all the criticism like it was hard to find uh like somebody that like went through a lot of points, but like the consensus among critics is that they, they argue that it's a mess that like doesn't connect as clearly as Anderson wants it to, which you've already kind of addressed that point that you've, you've already said that you think it connects really well. Like right. he does a really good job at it. Um, they also think it lacks purpose or meaning. No, that's and, silly. Yeah. It's a silly idea because like what you were saying there at the end is that the idea is like, um, again this is very uh, very much what i would think i was saying with like generations is like how do you live in a world where you have this kind of inherited trauma right and like how do you heal like how do you continue on and it seems that the end and it's done through the john c Riley character jim the police officer is the scene with Donnie where he decides to help him out and cut him a break and let him put the money back that he's stolen. Um, he has that, those lines about how, like, you know, the hardest part of his job is figuring out what is it like, you know, when, when, when to forgive um, and when, when people needed to go to jail or right. something like that. Like, and, um, you know, like it's the idea of forgiveness and it's the idea of being honest with one another as people. And that's when, like, he, that's the, if I actually never have watched it with the subtitles on, but now that I'm getting old and my hearing is getting worse, like, I watch everything with subtitles. Right. Same here. So I've never actually, um, 
listen to it with subtitles on and notice that you can because you can only barely um because what save me is playing it made me god the soundtrack is so i love yeah, amy really man good. but it's like um but then like there's the super tramp songs and like that are so uh it's so good but so save me is playing very loudly at the end of this movie it's it's the primary audio and you can kind of hear him talking a little bit um but it's, you can only pick out certain words or phrases when he's talking to her um, oh right, I never understood what he was saying. But when you scene. watch with the subtitles, yeah. you can actually hear everything that he's saying, yep. and it makes it perfectly clear at that point. Like that, the idea is like they made a promise at dinner to one another that they would always tell each other the truth, and he's going to keep that promise. And he came there to tell her the truth is that if she wants to do this, like he's here for her, and he'll be there for, her, and you know. Um, and because he's such an earnest, like, guy, wholesome guy, like, you know he means it. And, like, the fact that he came back for, like, you know, and says that he's there for, um, and, you know, a smile that, like, lights up on her face. Right, you the get first... the smile of relief, which is, like, maybe the best moment of the movie. Sure, right. And um, it really seems it's, it's frank, honest conversation yeah. um, and, and, and forgiveness, like um, not only of others, but yourself, I think right. sometimes. Um, well, things that she wasn't able to forgive in herself that someone's now able to accept and forgive in her. Sure. That like allows her to move on. Right. And it's like, I mean, that that's the answer to this movie. If there is one of like how to kind of move past and that, that, that trauma. Right. And so I do think there's a meaning and a purpose oh, yeah. I, to, to, pe- to this. So maybe what the thing is, is that maybe people are looking for something much grander because it is such a complex and epic. Maybe. Epic in the truest, like, meaning of the word yeah. film. And the answer is, like, pretty simple. You know, it's yeah. just like, it's just love. Really yeah, right. love and forgiveness. Right. Like, that's that's the answer to everything. Yeah. Um, like so a couple of specific heart. things about this. Tom Cruise. We just talked about him two nights ago right. about Eyes Wide Shut and you criticized some of his acting choices completely fairly um, in that movie. It has to be Tom, Kroll's, Tom Cruise's best performance ever, right? Yes. Yeah. The the Two, two specific scenes. The silently judging you yeah. scene when he's being interviewed by the woman yes. who's kind of like doing gotcha journalism mm-hmm. at him. And then the scene at the end where he's crying at Jason Robard's side and he's... Yeah called him a cocksucker and like mm-hmm. he's so upset with him but then at the end it's like don't leave me you fucking asshole don't yeah. leave me yeah which is really strong it is yeah poor philip seymour hoffman just sitting in the back yet another another performance of his that's another, just... oh my god he's so funny like and not like i mean it's obviously intentional like he's is this like but it's the character that's funny like you know right. it's it's the situation that he's in um but it's like when he's ordering the the, the porn magazines, right. like um. Just, how about um? How about Hustler? Do you have a Hustler? And it's just like he's so innocent, like where he's like, yeah, yeah, you have that, <laughs> like um. Okay, yeah. <laughs> right. Do you still want the band aids? Yeah, the great joke. The, yeah, yeah. Um, great joke. And oh, well, yeah. He um. You know, but he's so he's so innocent in like trying to order like these these items that he feels uncomfortable with. I. Like, he's fantastic in it. Robards is so good. And I just read the other day that Brando was offered this first. Yeah, he's um, that. that I told you. And um, I don't think that would have been the same. No, I think I think, I, I think Robards, like, nails that role. He does. I mean, it's just, like, there's... And he dies, like, 
like three months after this, I think. Um, so it really adds, I think, in some ways to like the, the fact that he died so quickly yeah. after um, filming this. Well, Brando didn't live much longer past. This he didn't. No. Um, no, not at all. But it's like fucking P- P.T. Anderson is trying to find some like like dying old actor. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, I got a role for you. Um, <clears throat> William H Macy to me is a standout in this. Yes. Yeah, P.T. Anderson pulls something out of William H. Macy that I don't know that anybody else can. Yeah. Like, yeah. just that fractured vulnerability that yeah. he gets out of Macy. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly... To, I think it's the saddest story. It's very the, sad. In, in the movie. Like, um, it's certainly the one that, like, I think I, I feel the most for at times. Like, and... Uh, but great dialogue... Like yes. with him and um, Henry Gibson, who um, was uh, Doctor Klopek in the Burbs, um, <clears throat> who um, old old laughing actor, um, a comedian, but Henry Gibson in that small role is so good at yes. being the antagonist in those bar sequences with with the William H Macy character Donnie. Um, but yeah, they, he gives Donnie really great lines at times. Like, you know, there's the one you referenced, you know, I have a lot of love to get. I just don't know, know where to put it. And then there's, um, you know, it's okay to confuse children with angels. Um, yeah. Like before he goes to like throw up in the bathroom, like so such good stuff. Um, but yeah, like perfect casting. Almost yes. in every single Across role. the board. Yeah, yeah. There's, there, there's nothing that's bad casting. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like who who cast this movie is that's not stuff I pay attention to, but like, you know, and I'm sure obviously like PT Anderson and stuff have a, a, the biggest say in all of it, but it's like the casting agent for this, like just nailed everything like, um, like down to like the smallest characters. And yeah, I, this is, I've said this about stalker, I guess already. Um, as well, but this has to be a top twenty, if not a top ten, movie for me. Probably, yeah, ever. this is really high for me as well. Yeah. I, I don't know, top twenty is so hard, <laughs> but it's really high. It's it's an yeah. amazing. In movie. terms of my favorite movies, it's certainly in there. Yeah, like because um, the the last thing is the pacing of this. Like this is a three hour movie, right? Almost exactly a little longer, right? Just like, a little longer than that. I think 189 yeah. minutes, I believe. Yeah, but it, it feels like it's like a two hour long movie. Yeah, like it's yeah. And you know what it is, and we uh, we were talking about this yesterday too. It's 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 that almost Hitchcockian score that's happening from about twenty five to thirty minutes in mm-hmm. through the rainstorm, right? That just like makes you feel like that pace is so much, yeah. And he just cuts like you know. It's any what it is. It's like you you know. <clears throat> uh, Rise of the Skywalker. <laughs> yeah. We were we were talking about this the other week. Is where I was complaining about like how quick the scenes were. Right. Um. These scenes a lot of times can do that as well. But it actually adds to the movie rather than detracts. Right. And then it's because you're you... still getting characterization in those little bits. Sure. And then it swings you back into that scene. Right. Like it like ups the ante on like somebody's personal story or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then swings you back into like like whatever they call it, like media res or whatever to like mm-hmm. somebody else's like story. Right. And it's yeah. um it's it, it it's it's amazing. Yeah. How old yeah. like twenty eight when he made this? Twenty eight like, years that's, old. That's fucking crazy. It is. Makes you feel like such a failure, <laughs> doesn't it? Like it does. tw- twenty six when he makes Boogie Nights, 
28 when he makes this. Crazy. You know? I mean, just the idea that he's 38, mm. when you think about it, when he makes um, There Will Be there Blood. There Will Be Blood, right. Like, he's, 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 he's still younger than me. Yeah, such a mature like, movie, too. Uh, yeah, right. It's, it's, there will be Blood's a movie that a, that a 50-year-old makes. Like, like right. somebody in their 50s, like, not even a 50-year-old. Right, like that's somebody. your, that's, that's your masterpiece at the end of your career as right. a filmmaker. Yeah, not it's, like, yeah, it's the age of, like, you're getting close to 60 and right. you make that masterpiece. Um, and by the age of 38, he has three. You know, that are like absolute like Three master- plus Punch Drunk Love which and is great. Part Eight, which are both really and, great Which movies. are both really good right, really great movies. Like, um but yeah, he's got three masterpieces yeah. by the age of thirty eight. He's a pretty amazing guy. I mean, I think yeah. definitely like the greatest director of our generation. Yeah. In my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So that is um our last episode of two thousand and nineteen. Happy two thousand twenty. Yeah. Um Let's well, it's a good year for our podcast, but it let's hope, let's hope it's a better year, uh, <laughs> um, in every other way, probably. <laughs> um, so uh, we are going to on New Year's Day release a um a, a slightly special episode. We we have an introduction to the podcast that we are going to redo and release um on January first, since we are getting so many new listeners. Um, but I, we're also going to add some other content in for current listeners, uh, cause I have a series of questions I've been cultivating for a month or two that I want to ask Frank, um, to address. Um, so a little bit will be rehashed from our original introduction. Some of it will be new material. Um, and then as we move into 2020, that'll be our first episode of 2020 that we'll release on uh, new year's day. And then for the rest of January right now, we have planned the top five spaghetti Westerns, uh, the top five movies with female protagonists. And then the, um, we're doing something different every other month, um, rather than doing the B horror that we did last year, every month, um, we're going to be reinstituting uh, the third man um, every other month next year, and then we are also doing a thing where I am randomly selecting um, using you know uh, an app kind of and a website like randomly generating a year and a genre that Frank has to go kind of study <laughs> and pick the top five out of. What ended up coming up out of this for January was um, the year 1987 and horror. So, despite 1978, right? 19- oh, what did I say? 87. Oh, yeah, 78. 78. So, um, despite my promises um, a month ago <laughs> that we would be staying away from horror for a bit, uh, sucked them back in. Yes, yes. Every time I 78 is a good year. So yes, so um, we will be doing a, doing a horror list there um, at the end of January, despite my promises. Yeah. So um, so that's the that's the plan for January. Um, again, have a good um, New Year's. Yep, be safe, New Year's. and um, we hope to see you next time. All right. Have a good night.